Hail, and well met, Traveler. Welcome to Threat Dice, a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, storytelling, and the vagaries of the dice. I'm your host, Kylan Wigan. I am one-third of the team at TumbleThigh Games, a young company developing a new hybrid storytelling RPG called Trove. We believe in the power of story, and the goal of Trove is to simulate the arc and tension of a three-act story within the framework of a tabletop RPG. You can find out more at www.tumbledie.com, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, at TumbleDie, or Instagram. As a reminder, Threat Dice will be off on December 25th and January 1st, returning with new episodes on January 8th, 2021. We wish you all a safe, healthy, and happy holiday season. May next year bring better things than this one has delivered. As with any work of art, this podcast will continue to evolve. We look to bring you more cool things next year. More gameplay, more fiction, more tabletop discussions, and whatever else we can bring in. We're not content to stay one thing, so we hope you'll come along as we keep figuring all of this out. Today I decided it might be a good idea to take a look back at where we started, and how far we've come as a podcast this year. We launched on May 8th, 2020, a result of wanting to speak directly to the community and grow outside ourselves, as Kevin, Andy, and I worked on Trove. We started with a discussion about Session Zero and getting a new game started, seemingly a fitting topic for an inaugural episode. I think the first question I ask is, do you want me to take care of the world, or do you want us to all build it together? Because depending on the answer, I know what kind of work I need to do, or what kind of questions I need to ask. If I need to deliver a world to them, then that's something I start working on before session zero even starts. However, if, if they want to work, if we all want to work together to create the world as we go, then everything starts in session zero. Absolutely. And I have put both of those to good effect in the past myself. Andy, you just hit the nail on the head, I think, it, with that boiling it down to talk to your players and find out how much world building they're interested in doing. Because... Like you said, if they all come back and they're like, wow, yeah, we could we could do this from scratch. I've got some cool ideas. Let's throw them all in and stone soup it. <laughs> and Wow, if anybody gets that analogy, that's cool. Um, I but, do, uh, but for the record, and, I do. Yes, point for you. Thank you. I, yes. I, I do not. Oh, well, okay. All right. No, no candy for you. <laughs> but, but the point is, if, you know, if everybody wants to sort of collaborate and, you know, throw in their ideas, that's great. And the opposite extreme being, like you said, they really just want something preformed. Then the narrator, the GM, can do lots of work, build a really robust world and environment and, and create lots and lots of rich detail and history and give the players lots and lots of guidance as to what kind of characters they can create. But if, if the players are, are really interested in coming up with their own concepts for their characters, then that might also lead to what kind of world you're going you're gonna to live in. Just a couple episodes later, as I was getting my feet under me as podcast host and producer, I brought Kevin and Andy back to talk about the clash between fiction and established RPG conventions. Andy, what do you think Gandalf is? Uh, he is the architect of the Third Age. That is not exactly the answer I was hoping for, but good, good, we'll start there. I don't think architect is a character class. 
<laughs> you know, like it's a boring so, one. Line drawing plus three, like <laughs> like compass plus one blueprints. Slide ruler of <laughs> Vorpal slide ruler. <laughs> so, as far as uh, gaming goes, anyways. Ah. Let's frame the uh, conversation in terms of our uh, RPG background. Okay. So in terms of gaming, yes. how do you see Gandalf? Um, he's a wizard. Gandalf is a wizard. He's a wizard, Kylan. Of course he's a wizard. <laughs> Kev, what about you? Yeah. He's, he's, yeah, of course he's a wizard. He, uh, what, he says it himself, right? He says uh, a wizard is, is never, never late, nor is he early. He always arrives precisely when he means to he's a self-described wizard so i mean if you're gonna believe anybody it should be gandalf well what if i don't believe gandalf and i guess that's the question i'm not actually <laughs> sure i do believe him in this case oh my god the emails we're gonna get <laughs> so let, uh, i'm gonna make a case here and i want you guys to tell me if you think i'm crazy okay i think that in terms of the gaming archetypes that we are so familiar with, I think that Gandalf is not a wizard, but a cleric. And I'll tell you why. Because he has a mace. Wait, he doesn't have a mace. <laughs> no, he doesn't have a mace. He has a quarterstaff. But quarterstaff is on the cleric list. He also doesn't wear armor, but he's a little bit more, I think, the priest cleric type as opposed to the martial cleric. And the reason I think this is because uh, Kev, what is the first thing you think of when you think of your uh your your D D wizard? D D wizard. Um. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like uh, damage spells, lightning bolt, thunder, uh, fireball, fireball. Right. Fireball. That's the one that every D D wizard is working towards. They're dying to hit fifth level so they can sling that fireball around. Yes, in a ten by ten room. <laughs> right. Sling sling the meme around that says, "I didn't ask how big the room was. I said I cast fireball." <laughs> Nerds. <laughs> so, where in Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit does Gandalf throw a fireball? Uh, Andy? <laughs> um, nope. Yeah, I don't no. think he does. Nope. Not long after that, in late June, I read The Lost War by Justin Anderson and was so lucky that he agreed to an interview about the fusion of games and stories. His own book had drawn inspiration from his own personal RPG sessions, after all. So, um, about the characters specifically, I've, mm -hmm. I felt like as soon as I picked up the book, the, and the moment Alandria came on screen, which was, of course, I don't know, the second or third page, I was like, this character may have been an elf at some point. She was. <laughs> she I thought absolutely so. was. <laughs> yes, she was. And when, and when Glorbad came on screen, I was like, this guy was a dwarf. Yes, he was. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. He was. I've yep. been, uh, as you might be able to tell, I've been playing RPGs for a long time. So um, yep. to to see them and to recognize the archetypes, but have them altered was really neat. And I like that a lot to have them interpreted as, you know, humans in this setting that you'd created. Um, yep. But to be able to clearly see their RPG roots was really neat. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, they were. You're absolutely right. I, and I made I made the decision that I wanted to keep to human characters in this i wanted I, I wanted to go a more sort of low fantasy route with it and keep it to keep it to human characters but yes you're absolutely right i mean alandria alandria was an elf um and glorbad was a dwarf 
And um, I'm trying to think of the other way. I think most of the other characters were human. Um, were any of them not human? I don't think so. I think the other I think the other characters were humans, but those two specifically, yes, you're absolutely right. So as far as picking up characters that belong to your friends and molding them to fit the story that you wanted to tell, what was that process like building this the story from pieces that existed and new things you had to create of whole cloth? There was a there was a real moment where I had to stop and disassociate the characters from the players. Mm. because I was, uh, you know, I was thinking about things I wanted to do with the storyline and therefore what the characters were going to have to do. And and I was really associating them with their players. And I was like, oh, no, I can't have her. Do- She'd never do that. No, that's not. That. And I was just like, no, wait, this is not her. <laughs> this is not. Right, I actually have right. to step away from this and, and say, OK, now that these characters you know, are mine to play with as such, I need to step away from defining them the way they their players necessarily define them. And, you know, I can change them. I can do different things with them. And as soon as I did that, it really freed me up in a lot of ways to kind of do more with them than I would have done originally. But but I had to I had to recognize that it was it was a subconscious thing that I was limiting what I was prepared to do with the characters and how I was prepared to have their relationships develop and interact and so on because I had associated them so much with uh, their previous incarnations and their players. So yeah, that was, a, that was something I had to overcome. And I also had to um, get away, I suppose, from the, the idea of who they had been before as well. You know, right. the, the kind of, I, I had that history in my head of the, essentially who these characters were, how they tended to behave. I had to kind of unlearn all of that and recreate them from, not, so, not from the ground up, because I had a, I had a basis of, you know, what kind of person they were and what kind of abilities they had and, you know, what their backgrounds were. But uh, but I had to make sure that that was, you know, what I wanted them to be rather than what I was kind of bringing with them. Right. And because they became dissociated from their actual history, I imagine yeah. that that took a lot of it as well. You had to kind of create new backgrounds for these characters that tracked with their previous experiences so that their personalities were roughly correct. Yeah. Yep, without exactly. completely betraying the concept of the character. Yeah, I mean, I can I can remember the day that I literally um, sat down with a notebook and was like, right, I need to I need to get this out of my head. My, I drive my wife nuts because I keep so much in my head and don't write stuff down. Sure, it's like right. I've got to get this out of my head and write down the backstories for these characters. So for every one of the main characters, especially the point of view characters, but but the other ones as well, um, I sat and wrote like two pages of A4 of their backstory, and just like <laughs> defined it all really clearly. And that was actually really helpful because in particular, um, there's a couple of characters, Nuria in particular. I felt like I didn't have a clear enough picture of her and who she mm-hmm. was, and therefore her voice was not as clear to me. Sure. And once I sat and wrote down her backstory and worked out who she was and what you know had happened to her and where she'd come from, I actually went back and rewrote quite a few of her. In fact, I think I rewrote all of her point of view scenes, or at least heavily edited them, to completely change her voice. Originally, her voice was far too similar to Alandria's, and I had to mm-hmm. go back and really think of it again from her perspective of her as a character and get her voice coming across instead. Inspired by how well I thought Justin's interview went, I decided to reach out to other members of the tabletop RPG community to learn how they became gamers. The first one I talked to was Eli, and we had a wonderful discussion. So who you mentioned a ranger as that very first character. Um, so what was that character like? 
very standoffish. I yeah. and I realized after like I had made my first like handful of characters for D and D games that I was playing very standoffish characters a lot, like mm-hmm. <laughs> hidden depression, don't trust anybody, and all this other stuff. And um, <laughs> so it was this half elf um, who. I don't even think I made like a whole backstory for them. I think their fam their tribe got destroyed by giants and he ran away from home and um he ends up with a companion that is a panther. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't remember the panther's name. <laughs> that makes me sad because it was a really cute panther. <laughs> but yeah, uh so he was he was great, honestly. Like for a first character, he was dramatic. He um, didn't take shit from anybody, and mm-hmm. it was just like it was a good time. Um, but like from there, I really started to branch. Tried to tried to branch out. Um, for a while, it stayed in the vein of I'm gonna trust a little bit more, or I'm gonna trust a little bit less, and I'm like sure. What's less than zero. Um, <laughs> so. In episode 13, I took a dive into the weird dichotomy between the fantasy of feats and strength and the way we handle the mental aspect of role-playing in the episode called Charisma. I think it would be entirely uncontroversial for me to state that the whole core concept of a tabletop role-playing game is to play a role. That is, to inhabit, temporarily of course, the persona of someone who is very different from our real-life self. This may include some fantastic ancestry, descent from fey wood-dwellers who gaze with almond-shaped eyes upon a world that changes faster than they, or perhaps from hard-drinking, hard-fighting, bearded mountain-dwellers who for some reason all speak with Scottish accents, and have since long before John Rice davies gave us his delightful Gimli on screen. It may include crossing gender lines for those who have the courage. In many cases, it involves inhabiting a role of someone much stronger than our pasty, screen-addicted selves. Misters Vin Diesel, Travis Willingham, and Joe Manganiello accepted, of course. Or perhaps someone more agile, who can perform athletic and acrobatic feats that rival those of Olympians, the very best that Homo sapiens, or others, have to offer. With just a few rolls of the dice, these characters can perform feats of strength or agility that would astound us if we saw them live in the real world. But here's where things get weird. In the case of the other side of things, the dice only come out when there's a game mechanic involved. Need to make a spell attack? Okay, roll plus your intelligence. Want to spot something unseen? Well, you'd better roll wisdom, I guess, but uh, okay, fine. Want to distract the local town guards? Stand up and tell me exactly what you say to them, in front of all our friends, word for word. And it better be impressive, because otherwise, I'm not even going to let you roll. Ever encountered this at your table? I bet you have. Or, you may have encountered the opposite. One of the players at the table, so far playing a taciturn fighter who dumped charisma, suddenly stands up and gives an eloquent and rousing speech. No dice are rolled, and suddenly the entire town is on his side because his player is well-spoken. Just three episodes later, in episode 16, Things Got Real, I talked about some of the defining experience of my life and what it means to us to experience something besides fun at the gaming table in grief and gameplay. Pushing a player into permanently losing something they've invested time and emotion into causes, well, emotion. 
Some people might not want to play anymore. Others might be furious, not with the dice, but with the person sitting behind the DM screen, who should have done something. Others might be furious at their fellow players, because they didn't act fast enough to salvage the situation. There's a word for this feeling, the one you experience when something you spent time, thought, and emotion on is suddenly taken away from you, irrevocably. It's grief. Grief is complicated. This is not an emotion that we generally seek out. It's certainly not one you expect to simulate in a game where you're all supposed to be having fun. Grief is not an emotion that's acceptable, at least in my culture. It makes people awkwardly avoid you, offer platitudes and empty words, and then stop talking to you until you feel and act normal again. And yet, that's what we feel when our level 12 character gets dropped in one hit by something that outclasses them. We've known that character for a year or more, and even though they are fictional, their sudden demise hits like a punch to the gut. Someone we cared about, even as an abstraction, is gone. After I met the wonderful Gamer Mom Luna on Twitter, and we realized that fate had conspired to place two internet strangers remarkably close to one another in meat space, we set up a little exchange. She agreed to come on Threat Dice for an interview, and I got to appear on her Tales from the Tavern discussion show on Twitch, and we both gained a friend. So what was the very first tabletop RPG system that you learned to play? Well, uh, it was D&D, um, but it was uh, back during 3.5. Uh, so I've been playing for uh, close to 13 years now. Um, and I actually mark that time by how old my daughter is because I started playing when she was a newborn. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So it was it was still D&D 3.5 when she was born. And, um, and it was actually it was really great um, because... It was one of those things where my now ex-husband was hosting uh, a game at our house that had started, you know, before she was born. Um, and of course, he was hosting it at our house because, like, God forbid, I go into labor in the middle of a game or something like that. So, sure. Um, so, uh, so um, after my daughter was born, you know, they would have they would have their game nights, you know, their one night a week. And I would be like, oh, yeah, I'll take care of the baby, whatever. And, you know, I'd put her to bed and I, you know, then, of course, you know, being a new mom, I'm like, all right, I'm going to bed, too. Good night. You know, <laughs> um, and then slowly as like time went on and she started to get a little bit older, I would be like, OK, I'm going to put the baby to bed. And then I'd like be back downstairs on the couch, like kind of listening to what was going on. And then finally I was just like, all right, make room. I'm coming in. You know, I, I want in on this. So yeah. So that was pretty much how I jumped into it too. Um, you know, it was a, it was an easy, uh, easy thing to jump into because it was all mutual friends of ours anyway. So it wasn't sure. like there was a bunch of new people that I didn't know. Right. Um, so they made it really easy for me and, and, uh, yeah, it was all, it's been all downhill since then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad they made it easy for you because that is not always the case. I had so much fun testing out new games in the second half of this year. My experience GMing Zweihander was transformative in a lot of ways, and experiencing something beyond the D&D model made my own thoughts on gaming that much clearer. Okay, here's the high level on the scenario. The PCs were in a small town called Warford, where they had heard there was a silver mine producing tons of cash. Kind of a gold rush scenario. They came all the way there from far away, only to find out that it wasn't nearly as nice as everyone said. Shocking, I know. After a couple weeks of barely scraping by, though, something happened. 
the miners stopped going up the mountain and tension began to build. The PCs ended up accepting a contract from the town's Lord Mayor to figure out why the miners weren't going up anymore. That there was some kind of curse on the mine, and so the Miners' Guild had simply stopped working until the problem was solved. Politics and intrigue abounded behind the scenes, but in short, the PCs needed to figure out what this curse was and how they could break it in order to get paid. There are two key moments that stick in my mind, where I really saw what this game could do with players who had bought in. The first came early on in Session 2. After getting everything in order in town during Session 1, the PCs, and an NPC, the head of the Miners' Guild, headed up the mountain so that the PCs could get a first-hand look at the so-called curse. On the way, they came across a woman, desperate for help. She was the wife of one of the miners, and they had been sneaking their cart up the mountain to load it up with silver since the miners weren't working. But instead, the cart's axle had snapped, and cart, horse, and husband had all plunged into the ravine off the side of the trail. She offered to pay them everything she had if they could find her husband, since she was not brave enough to venture into the forest herself. Two of the players were not particularly interested in this. I'm not sure whether it was a failure in my presentation, or whether they were just not willing to risk their hides, which I had so clearly explained were in great danger, for someone they just met. In the end, only Varric the burglar ventured down the steep forest drop-off, assisted by Heimdallr and a sturdy rope. What Varric found was the shattered cart, and nearby, the poor dead horse being feasted upon by what were essentially ghouls. The miner, somehow, was still alive, though his legs were mangled by the fall. I described as one of the ghouls broke away from its feast, alerted by the sound of Varric's approach, he missed a stealth check, and started coming towards him and the paralyzed miner. He suffered peril just for seeing this hideous creature, something out of legend, something that wasn't supposed to exist, something with long, scything claws and papery skin, crawling toward him like a scorpion, intent on eating him alive. And so, Varric turned and ran. In my biggest production and writing experiment yet, I spent the month of October cosplaying the podcast as a solo live play experience using Trove. The result was a five-episode miniseries called Falcon's Cry, and I am intensely proud of what it turned into. Here's the first moment that I combined music, narration, and sound effects to really evoke the mood of terror when our hero, Bryn, encountered the terrible beast called the Hidden Eye. Bryn has been this way before, or so she thought. Instead of the forest thinning and getting brighter as they approach the Weirda, it gets thicker and darker. The land slopes downward, and the canopy above grows so thick that it feels like night, even though it should only be afternoon. By the time they are exhausted from traveling, Bryn has no idea where they are. Donal quivers in fear. A chill grows in the air. It's dry here, though it was misty earlier. There is only the dim, ambient sound of the forest creatures around them. Bryn grits her teeth. Damn, this should have been so easy! Just then, a low sound echoes across the forest floor, a deep, bellowing roar that shakes the earth beneath them. Something big, something terrible is coming. Bryn pushes Donald down behind a tree and takes cover. Slowly, painstakingly, an enormous creature, almost the size of the great lizard that devastated their village, comes into view. At first glance, it seems to be just a large mass of fur shambling through the forest 
but Bryn knows this creature. She has seen those golden eyes before, peering wickedly from beneath that shaggy pelt, that inhuman intelligence searching for prey. This is the hidden eye. She has only ever seen it at a distance, warned by her elders never to go near it. The hidden eye, if confronted, would be enough to kill five strong men without even risking its own hide. Weapons tangle in its long fur, rendering them useless. Its intelligence causes it to lure in its prey, strike without warning, retreat, and strike again. This is not a creature that they can hope to defeat. A few dozen yards away, the creature stops to take a deep, languid breath of the forest air. Bryn doesn't dare to breathe. Her hand is clamped over Donald's mouth so tightly that the boy may have bruises. She stares, rigidly, hoping that the gentle breeze currently carrying the hidden eye's musky scent towards them will not suddenly shift directions. They are lucky to be downwind. After an eternity... The hidden eye lets out a deep huff and bellows once again, the horn blast of its coming nearly rattling Bryn's eyes from her head. Then, slowly, it lumbers on. They cannot stay here. They have to flee. It doesn't matter where. Bryn drags Donald deeper into the forest, away from the hidden eye. Away, away, away. And finally, during Falcon's Cry Episode 4, Bryn took a calculated risk and destroyed a threat to her companions, pulling it off with flair. Bryn, high up in the tree, holds her breath as the Shrike emerges from the brush below her. She grips the haft of her spear so tightly that her hand begins to ache as it sniffs, drawing closer to the trunk below her, scratching at the roots as it searches for its intended prey. She could leap down and try to surprise it, to kill it. If she landed a good strike, her spear would cleave through its scales and she could kill it without too much trouble. The difficulty is, she has no idea whether or not it is actually alone. She can't see the others, but that means little. Shrikes are most dangerous because they work in packs, and because they are very hard to see when moving with intent. If it is truly alone, then she could kill it and flee before the others could react. She could wait it out, hope it doesn't spot her here in the high tree. If it does, though, it would call for its pack for certain, and then she would be faced against all three of them with no hope of escape. She would have to fight and kill them all, and she stands little chance alone against them. They are animals, but they are canny hunters. Bryn grits her teeth until it feels as though they may crack. She has to take it. She has to take the chance that she can see, and hope that the others of the pack aren't too close. She would have to get very lucky to not be spotted by this creature, and if she's seen, she has the same problem, except that none of them are dead. The Shrike reaches the base of the tree. It's now or never. Silent as a shadow, Bryn drops from the bow, her starfall spear extended before her. It's a tough call, but Bryn being who she is, she has to give it a try. Freeze and flee are too dangerous to make as a choice here, so she's going to have to fight for her friends. Let's find out whether it ends in victory or disaster. The effort is two. It's a tough critter, but she's got the drop on it. The Starfall Spear reduces that to one. This is definitely a body challenge, and she's going to invoke both the spear and her fight-kill-destroy skill to add two to her trove. She'll raise by two, her limit for body challenges. 
and she has a good narrative advantage on the strike, giving it a plus 5 on the d20. 15 plus 5 is a dirty 20. Nailed it. She spends two of her five remaining trove and gets just what she wanted. Bryn drops from the tree, silent as the coming of twilight. She lands on the creature, center mass, the starfall spear cleaving scale and flesh, robbing it of even its dying scream. They tumble to the ground in a heap, and by the time they stop, the shrike is already dead. She yanks the spear from its scales, drops to a crouch, and listens. Silence. The problem, of course, is that she's now covered in Shrike blood. They're sight hunters primarily, but that doesn't mean they won't follow a trail of fresh blood to its source. If she goes straight back to Donal and Kiva, she'll likely lead the Shrikes right to them, and they'll be in the same predicament as before. She pulls handfuls of wet leaves from the ground and starts rubbing off the blood as quickly as she can. The rain is still falling. It won't be long before she's washed mostly clean. She scrubs at her hands and arms and the starfall spear, leaving heaps of ruddy brush around the shrike's cooling body. Bryn takes another look around, her breath tight in her chest. Still nothing. She takes off into the forest, praying that the others will not have enough of a trail to follow. She loops back on her own trail, doubling back several times, trying to confuse it so much that the shrikes will give up in hopes of easier prey. To be honest, I'm very proud of what we've done with Threat Dice this year. I'm looking forward to a lot of things next year, and a big part of that is making sure that we have interesting, fresh, and exciting things to talk about. I think we'll be doing more system discussions, more talk about stories and games and how they interact and diverge, and hopefully, we'll even have some ongoing stories to tell as Trove gets closer and closer to its final form. Thank you all so much for a wonderful year. Thanks so much for joining me today. Before we go, one quick thing. If you're enjoying Threat Dice, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform, on Podchaser, or tweet us at TumbleDie. I'll read any reviews into the announcements on the next session. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, may the road ever rise to meet you. Threat Dice is a production of TumbleDie Games, LLC. Our intro music is What Lies Beyond, the interludes are Clockwork, and the outro music is Storm, all by Vincevept. Check out his amazing work at youtube.com slash Vincevept, V-I-N-D-S-V-E-P-T. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Kylan Wigan. You can find Threat Dice on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.